tonight we're reading from Psalms chapter 119, verses 9 to 19. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the lords that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statues, and as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your percepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are you're glorious, and you're beautiful, and you're powerful, and that through your word we're able to catch a glimpse of that. Uh, thank you that through the Spirit dwelling in us, we're able to uh, taste and see uh, your beauty. Uh, we thank you because of the work of Christ that we are able to experience that personally, both now and forever. And tonight, as we look at your word, we pray that you'll speak to us. We know that you are triumphant, you are good, uh, and you conquer. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that we'll approach your word with that in mind, knowing that you're good and gracious and merciful to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool, so a little heads up, we're talking about sex tonight, okay, um, it's going to be pretty PG, um, but just a heads up, okay. Uh, we, um, we're, we're doing a series called Prepare Him Room, as you can see, my room has been prepared uh, a lot more since last week, Leon's got up there and um, made it nicer, so thank you Leon. Uh, but we, each week we've been looking at, uh, a, we've been doing a series called Prepare Him Room, thinking about making room for Jesus in our lives, and each week... We remove clutter from that room, and we talk about something that we can replace it with. So we've looked at removing worry from our life and replacing it with prayer. We've looked at getting rid of this media saturation and replacing it with uh, saturation in the Word of God. We've looked at uh, an unhealthy relationship with food and replacing that with eating for God's glory and fasting. And tonight, uh, we're looking at sexualization and replacing that with purity, right? Sexualization and replacing it with purity. And uh, to the joy of many of you, if you found that poster or that calendar of, um, of me uh, distracting, uh, we'll be removing that this evening. You know why? Incidentally, that's a, it's a fireman calendar, right? I applied for the fire brigade like about 15 years ago, right? Um, I, and, and I didn't get in, and I know you're shocked because strong, courageous, all those things, but, um, but I always wondered why they asked for a shirtless photo of me before I uh, applied. Uh, clear why I didn't get in, but um, that's all right. They didn't actually ask for a shirt, let's photo. Uh, okay, let's move on. Um, sexualization. We live in like a hyper-sexualized world, if you haven't noticed that. Right, I've got some stats here I want to throw at you, okay? Um, hyper-sexualized world. In 2017, the most popular porn website, just one porn website, was visited 28.5 billion times. That's 1,000 visits per second. All right? 1,000 visits per second. And that's just one porn website. Uh, here's another one. According to a study published in the Journal of Sex Research, probably haven't heard of that journal, but uh, men think about sex 19 times a day and women think about sex 10 times a day. It's on, it's on our brains, right? Uh, in 2012, I couldn't find a more recent study, but in 2012, a study done showed that 92% of the 174 songs that made up the Billboard Top 10 that year uh, had sexual references. 92% of the songs were about sex or at least alluded to it in some sort of way, right? Fifty Shades of Grey, the book, sold over 125 million copies. 
And this one really, like, this one struck me this week because it's, it's particularly relevant for us as a church. So there's a huge study of churches done in, in America. Uh, nothing similar in Australia yet, but I assume uh, in a globalised society things are pretty similar. Right? This big study of churches. Research was conducted of, listen to this, committed Christians attending church weekly. So it's talking about Christians who come to church weekly, right? Uh, and committed ones. Now, the stats showed from this, almost a quarter of people aged between 15 and 17 of regular weekly churchgoers, almost a quarter of them had sex outside of marriage, and over half of those aged between 18 and 22. Uh, and, and these aren't just people off the street. Like These are regular, constant churchgoers, right? People who are coming to church once a week and call themselves committed Christians. Uh, and if you think it's just that generational thing, statistics also show that young people these days are having less sex than previous generations. So uh, it's, I'm sure this is a statistic that's been the same throughout the generations. Now, clearly, we live in a sexualized society. Uh, we all know that. I didn't need to tell you those stats for it to make sense. And it's clearly influencing the church as well, right? And the beginning of our Bible reading tonight, in verse 9, asks us a question that I think is a pretty relevant question. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? That's our question tonight. How can a young person, or any person for that matter, I don't care what age you consider you are, how can someone stay on the path to purity? And traditionally, I think the church has has tried two different things. Uh, First one is like guilt and fear. Uh, I remember growing up, I became a Christian when I was about 16, and, and not long after I became a Christian in our Bible study group, we watched this DVD about saving sex till you were married. And it just slammed you about like how evil it was and how angry God's going to be at you. And that if you do have sex, you're probably going to get an STD and die or worse, an unwanted pregnancy. And, like, and it freaked me out as a 16-year-old. And then at the end, you had to sign a pledge saying, I will never have sex until I'm married, right? And like the, the, the guilt and the shame that that heaped on someone who, who like most 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, was struggling with that area of my life, really wasn't helpful. Uh, and so oh, I want to make it clear from the beginning that as we preach on this, we preached on Galatians a few months ago, and, and that's the perspective we're coming from, a perspective of grace, a perspective that Jesus lived the perfect life on our behalf. And, and when we're in Christ, we're, we're free of shame or guilt, and we can approach the Father boldly and comfortably. And I want you to know that. The second uh, approach the church has had is practical advice. So good tips, good practical tips on how not to uh, lose your purity, all right, and how not to like stumble or stuff up sexually and and practical advice is good i'm a big i'm a practical dude big fan of practical advice uh so it could be things like don't be behind closed doors with someone you find sexually attractive or don't have a computer in a room where no one can see you on it and uh all things like that right uh and all those things are really helpful i'm not saying they're bad they're the good things that encourage you to follow any of that sort of good practical advice but practical advice on its own is never really enough. Why? Well, because sex is pretty good, and if you know it's pretty good, all the practical advice in the world, uh, one day it's going to lose out to the fact that sex is good, and you're probably going to enjoy it. And so practical advice on its own is not enough. And so, big question then, if guilt and fear and practical advice aren't enough, how, like the psalmist says, how can I keep myself pure? How can I stay on a path of purity? And I think the answer is in the rest of that uh, section of the psalm. Uh, if you have a look through it, I'll, I'll just skim through it now. I want you to follow Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16. When it says purity here, it's talking about just general moral purity. 
And I think tonight I just want to apply it more specifically to, to sexual purity because it's definitely included in that word there, right? But have a, have a listen from, um, from verse 9 onwards about how someone can stay on the path of purity. There it is, verse 9. By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. That's another one. Seeking God with all your heart. Don't let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart. So this idea of having God's word hidden in you that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, God. Teach me your decrees. Again, listening and following what God has to say. Uh, With my lips, I recount the laws uh, that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts. Again, his, his laws, his rules, what he says, and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees and I will not neglect your word. Like we've looked at most weeks in this series, that, that a good antidote to, to any clutter in our life is uh, being absolutely saturated uh, in God's word, in a knowledge and understanding of who God is and his plans for us and our lives and what it means to be a Christian, to be saturated and soaked and immersed in that. That's the answer, right? That's the answer. Sounds easier said than done, though. But it is. It's about being saturated about being immersed in God and his, his thoughts and his ideas and his word. And so how do we remain pure in a sex-saturated world? Well, we replace sexualization with a robust theology of sex. We replace sexualization with a robust theology of sex, okay? So let's do it. And by it, sorry, I mean let's formulate a robust theology of sex. Uh, and so what is a theology of sex? A theology of sex, you can have a theology of everything, a theology of work, a theology of uh, fun, a a theology of sex uh, is a way of understanding sex and sexuality that comes from a deep knowledge of God and his will, right? Theology of sex or theology of sexuality is approaching that topic from a deep knowledge and understanding of God and his will. And we get this through the Bible, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what does the theology of sex look like? Well, we need to ask, what does the Bible teach about sex as we go through it? I'm going to run through a few things this evening. You can make notes if you want or listen. And then after we've done that, we're going to, we're going to have a chat with a member of our congregation to see how uh, this has been applied in their life as well. So the first point in the theology of sex is this. It's good. It is good. Uh, we won't spend too long on this, but, th- but interestingly, this is like one point where what the world says about sex and what the Bible says about sex like, yeah. It's the same. We can wholeheartedly agree with uh, the message that's coming to us that sex is good. Sex is great. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, it says in Genesis that before the fall, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were naked together. They felt no shame. Uh, Proverbs uh, tell, tells, tells you to always rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you always. Song of Solomon, if you've read it, make you blush, right? It's unique amongst the books of the Bible. It's all about marriage, uh, married sexuality between a man and a woman. Uh, it's, talking about, it's talking about sex, but not sex to have babies or anything like that, but just sex and enjoying it. Good, godly, enjoyable sex. Examples from there. Kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. Yeah, it's in the Bible, right? Um, his fruit is sweet to my taste. And it goes on and on and on like that, right? And remarkably, all of this is done without being rude or silly or like, well, some of us snickered then, but, like, but, but it's done in, in a beautiful and, and passionate way. So to sum it all up, first point in sexual, uh, theology of sex is 
It's good. It's created by God as a gift, and he wants his people to enjoy it as a great gift from him. Second point is this. It has boundaries. And again, you probably know this. If you've grown up in church or been around church for a while or never been to church but just heard other people's opinions of what churches teach, you would know that Christian sexuality has boundaries, right? God's designed sex to be enjoyed within divinely appointed boundaries. You'll see the phrase sexual immorality mentioned in the Bible uh, pretty regularly. And this word is sort of like a catch-all word that, reforms to, uh, that, that refers to any sort of sexual stimulation outside of a long-term covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman, right? Sexual immorality in the Bible is talking about any form of sexuality outside of a covenanted public marriage between a man and a woman. And so God's plan for sex is that it would be thoroughly and consensually enjoyed between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. Uh, We may bristle against this. It may not be a popular statement, but as we read the Bible, this this truth's inescapable, right? It's consensual. It's between a man and a woman, and it's within the covenant of marriage. Not a committed relationship, but the covenant of marriage. And as always, if if this... doesn't sound good to you or you're frustrated by this, we'd love to sit down and have a chat more with you about it. So come and chat with me afterwards uh, and we can certainly, we can certainly have a chat. But, but these boundaries aren't arbitrary. Uh, they're not there to, to, to make people's lives difficult either. They're there because God loves us, God loves good sex, and he wants to protect the beauty of sex. So it's good, it has boundaries. The third thing I want to say is that sex is designed by God as a way of knowing him more fully. I'll say it again. Sex is designed by God as a way of knowing him more fully. God designed it for many reasons. Pleasure, uh, glorification of him, a way to serve your spouse. But amongst these many ways, you see this theme running through the Bible. Uh, one of the chief metaphors of God's love in the Bible is that of an intimate marriage relationship. This is across both Testaments. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the husband of Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom of the church who he gave his life up for. And and God uses this physical example of how deep Jesus' love is for us as his church. And when we understand the coming together of a husband and wife, an intimate, close, self-sacrificial, service-based union, we can begin to get a taste of the depth of the intimacy that we can have with the Father. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you read uh, Ezekiel 16, super graphic. Um, and so I won't read it right now. You can read it in your own time. Ezekiel 16 sort of describes Israel as a woman taken in by God as his bride, right? Uh, he sees her. She's been dejected and left. And he, he finds her beautiful and, and calls her as his bride. And then later in the chapter, you see that Israel uh, ignores God and worships other gods. Uh, and it's likened to a wife committing adultery or leaving her husband to become a prostitute. Again, it's a very graphic image. But the image used of God's love for his people in the Old Testament is the covenant of marriage. Intimate, passionate, embracing, and something not to be tampered with. Hear this. God wanted us to have an idea of how we are to understand our exclusive, intimate, passionate relationship with him. And so he created marriage and uses it as an example. Now, don't take this to mean that our relationship with God is some sort of sexual one. That's, that's not what we're saying. But, 
but the intimacy, the fullness, the beauty that can only come through a sexual relationship uh, is, a, is a very clear human picture of God's love for us and the unity that we'll experience with him forever. In the New Testament, similar language, right? Jesus uses parables and stories where he is the bridegroom. This is picked up later in Revelation too, where we, the church, are described as a pure bride, beautifully dressed, awaiting Christ's return. Uh, and, and the consummation of all things is a, is a marriage feast, the joining together of Jesus and his bride, the church. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, if you've read Ephesians 5, you see him talking about husbands and wives loving and serving each other, submitting to one another. And then at the end of that section, he says something strange. He says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. God's love for his church and the love of a man and woman in marriage are, are almost interchangeable. Marriage is one of the closest things we have to the experience of our eternal life and love with God. But it's only a foretaste of the real thing. And that's why there's the boundaries we spoke of before, right? If God created sexual passion so that we may have a language or a paradigm through which to describe our relationship with him, then any sex outside of his plan that's revealed in the Bible is is not sex at all. It misses the mark. Uh, It's sinful. It doesn't promote God and it doesn't point towards the beauty of our relationship with him. And that's why there's boundaries in place. That's why certain things are wrong, because they don't do sex justice for the purpose it was created. You can't unconsensually have sex with someone and say, this is a picture of Christ's love for me. You cannot have sex with a random person you meet and just say, this is just a picture of Christ's love for me. You can't, you can't do that. It doesn't paint the picture of sex that Christ has created through his word. It's not how God designed it. And the fourth point I want to make with um, sexuality in the Bible is that it should glorify God. Our sexuality should glorify God. Now, uh, how we use and how we don't use our sexuality is an act of worship. Just think about that. It's an act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's speaking to the church about whether or not they can eat food offered to idols. But towards the end of that chapter, Paul says something that revolutionizes our idea of worship. You've probably read this before. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, he says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, he's talking about eating, but it's a catch-all. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Everything you do, Christian, is for the glory of God. That includes the use of your sexuality. That's revolutionary, right? Add to, add to that Romans 12, verse 1, uh, where Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. That's our spiritual act of worship. How we use our bodies, how we use our sexuality is worship. So we're to do all things to the glory of God. And our actions are worship. This is, this is revolutionary, right? Our worship isn't in a place at a particular... It's not at Narrabeen Baptist Church at 5pm on a Sunday, singing the few songs we have and listening to the Bible. That's part of our worship, but our, our worship is everything. Everything that this thing does should be worshipped towards God. Uh, It's not facing a certain direction or making a pilgrimage. It's in all things. Um, And this is important to get because if we're stuck in this dualistic idea that we have God's own church, community group, reading your Bible, and then just normal stuff like friendships, work, relationships, you're going to struggle 
in this zone, right? Because you'll think, well, God's over there, and as long as I'm in God's zone, I'm going to do God's stuff. I'm going to sing loud. I'm going to give lots of money. I'm going to listen really intently and take notes. But then over here, this isn't God's zone, so I know he's still around, but I'll just, uh, I'll just do my own thing. Uh, we're going to struggle. But if we realize that God's God of all, uh, like he is, then all of our life will be lived as an act of worship. And especially in a sex-saturated world, our sexuality. You've got to worship God with your sexuality. Uh, how do you do that? Well, knowing God's plan and his will for sex as revealed in his word is the right place to start. And so if you're single or dating, you worship God through avoiding lust uh, and controlling your passions and showing patience and satisfaction in God. If you're married, you worship God by enjoying the gift of sex with your spouse and your spouse only, but still realizing that, that marriage is more than just sex. If you're single, you're single for the glory of God. If you're engaged, you're engaged for the glory of God. If you're married, you're married for the glory of God. In all these stages of life, we're to use our sexuality as an act of worship. So, how do you keep your path pure? Well, you need a good theology of sex. And how does that help us? Well, it helps us to put things into perspective. And this is something I always tell people in pre-marriage counselling, right? We need to get sex into perspective, even within marriage. Sex is good, it's great, it's beautiful, it's created by God as a gift, but it's not the most important thing in the world. It's not the most important thing in your life. And I think that's where what the Bible says about sex differs from the messages we're getting from elsewhere. That it is incredible and beautiful and a gift from God, but, but there's way more. And it's actually pointing towards something bigger than itself. So singles, if you're not actively engaged in sexual activity, the world says you're a loser and there's something wrong with you, right? And you're missing out. You're not living life to its fullest and you're not enjoying uh, your body uh, or your sexuality the way you should, right? That's the message you will hear. Because sex is the best. It's the most important thing you can do and it's the, it's the way to be truly human and express yourself as a human. But it's a lie. Sex is good, it's beautiful, but it's not our chief aim. Our chief aim is to worship and glorify God. And so we need to get sex into perspective, right? And having a good theology helps us to do that. And it's also good to remember, not everyone's having sex. And not everyone who is having sex is enjoying it. Uh, and, and you can go your whole life without having sex, and it's all right. You won't explode. Uh, you'll be good. So that's for singles. But married people... You need to get it in perspective as well. Sex is important in marriage. It's beautiful, it's necessary, and it's a gift that you're able to enjoy within a marriage. But, but if you're not having a, a good, strong relationship in other areas, don't be excited or be bragging about how great your sex life is, right? Sex is important, but if you can't communicate properly, if you can't resolve the conflict in your marriage, if you can't, if you can't love and submit and care for one another properly in marriage, then don't get stoked about how good or how bad your sex life is. Because marriage is, is bigger than just that, right? And if it's not how you like, work it out. Talk with your partner and, and sort it out. Uh, but understand that you don't have the right to grumble or complain or look elsewhere. Uh, you are committed for life and, and sex is part of that commitment. So it helps us get sex into perspective when we have a theology, but it also helps us regarding our boundaries. Like I mentioned before, those boundaries are, are good, are purposeful, but... But often our boundaries ask this question, how far is too far, right? 
as a youth pastor years ago, I was asked that like trillion times, okay? Uh, And it's good that people are at least asking that question, but that's not the right question, how far is too far. Maybe you can ask the questions based on what we just looked at. Is my use of my sexuality enabling me to know Christ more? That's probably a better question. Not how far is too far, but is my use of sexuality enabling me to know and love and be satisfied in Christ more? And you can ask this question too. Am I using my sexuality to bring glory to God? Can I stand before myself or before God and say, my use of sexuality is a living act of worship to you? My sexuality is enabling me to love and know you more, God. I think they're helpful questions to be asking as we approach our sexuality. I hope that makes sense so far. Uh, just to bring this into the real world a little bit, I'm very aware that I'm, um, I'm male, uh, that I'm, I'm happily married and I have... I've, I was married when I was 19, right? And so when I'm up here, like, sprouting off this stuff about, you know, just, just calm down. Like, it's like, yeah, good on you, mate. You got married when you were 19, and I'm sure I know why, right? Um, uh, and that's not why. But I'm very well aware of my limitations as a man, as someone who has been long-term married. And so uh, as part of this, I thought I reached out to someone in church who, who I know is uh, a gifted teacher uh, and who, uh, uh, who's, who's lived as a single person for a long time and has uh, used a good theology of sexuality to help her. So I'm going to uh, welcome up Robin Ann Dixon. Could you please come join us on stage, Robin Ann? Please welcome her. Just stand over this side. There we go. Now, uh, Robin Ann and I had a chat earlier in the week. Uh, she's, she's more than happy to share these things. She hasn't been coerced in any sort of way. Uh, I, I offered having a... A woman to interview her, and she said, as part of her theology, think, she thinks it's a healthy thing to talk about in a healthy way. Uh, it's just like any other aspect of our discipleship that we should deal with well. And so, thank you, Robin Ann, for joining us. Um, Robin Ann's a deacon in our church. A deacon just means servant, and so she's part of our church council. She's been elected uh, by the church to serve, and she serves in wonderful ways, uh, in different strategic ways, in ways with mission, uh, in ways with women's ministry, uh, and, and blesses us in that capacity, and this is one of those ways. That's, thank you, Robin Ann. I am aware you have a cold, and I've been praying that you don't have a cough. Thanks, and I'm sucking on a cough, lozenge, so my apologies. That's fine. Um, could you just briefly, in a minute or so, give us a, a bit of a background of the interplay between faith and singleness and sexuality in your life? Uh, sure, and I just want to say, you did mention um, that that I've been doing this for a long time. I'd just like to remind you of the opening words of Psalm 119, of how can a young person... Yes. Yes. Cool. Well, you were young once. Uh, yeah. Keep digging there. Sorry. He's doing well, isn't he? Good thing there's a balance of women up here. Just going to sit down. Um, yeah, look, I'd just like to start with a bit of my journey, and some people know a bit of this, that um, when I was 19, um, a tragedy hit my life in um, that my mum died, and uh, that meant a loss of love within my life, and I had to really look at, well, you know, what do I do about this? I felt that I was so heartbroken, I felt like I, I had a hole within, my, within me, um, and one way that I looked at coping with this was um, look to the world and see, well, well, how do you get love? What is love in our world? And, of course, we've kind of talked about um, our culture really shows you that love through movies, through ads, through whatever, is sex. That's what love is. And so I needed love. 
And so that's where I went looking for it. Um, but it was really interesting. I did find that it didn't actually fill that hole within me. Um, and I, and in my journey in life some years later, um, the fact that I'm standing here now means that I did find Jesus and I learned that that hole within me was actually a hole that needed filling by Christ. And I've gone on a bit of a journey to understand, well, then what actually does sex mean in relation to being a Christian? Great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And um, so I'm going I'm to throw three words at you, Robin. Uh, uh, and Robin. Robin Ann. Thank oh, you. Man. I, I always call you Robin Ann, yes. and then you ask me, please always call me Robin Ann. I'm like, I always do. Uh, and, and He's on a go. great role Sorry. here, isn't he? All right, Robin Ann, I'm going to give you three words, right? Uh, and I just want you to tell me uh, what they mean to you in terms of your, uh, yeah, your, your singleness and your sexuality and your faith. So the first word is trust. Trust. Yes. Well, as I've said, my um, my starting life was was getting into um, in my my youth was getting into sex and then to, to solve problems to try and solve problems in my life. But then, as a Christian, I had to look at well, what does what's God's perspective on this? What does what does the Bible say? And I went on this amazing journey through here at Navin Baps and all of that, reading the Bible of then just what does the Bible say about how do I live for God? How do I live my life and use my body for God? And there's a few verses that, um, that really struck me. One was in Corinthians, which says, My body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And what really hit me, I thought, if I am joining my body with someone else who I am not in a covenantal marriage relationship with, I understood and this was really big for me. I understood that I am sinning big time. That this, my body is the Holy Spirit and I'm doing something like this. Just That was a really huge thing for me. Um, and I thought, well, okay, can I trust God? I mean, we've talked about sex is good, yes. But if, if this is such a big sin, can I trust God to go, no, I don't need that in my life. So I kept looking and I came across... For I know, in Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And I found in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't depend on my understanding and what I think is good. I also then looked at the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and we've got the first one, which is basic, which I interpret, can interpret tonight as don't put sex above God. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, I don't know if you know what the eighth commandment is. It's do not steal. And this is one that I actually found really interesting because in hindsight what I realised was happening when I was having sex outside that covenantal relationship was that I was actually, it was a two-way stealing process. I was actually losing something very intimate of myself doing that. And so commandment number eight. And then, of course, commandment number ten, don't be envious of what other people are having. And we talked about um, just what the role of sex is within marriage. And I, thinking through all these verses, I really came to the belief that, um, that while married couples can worship God through sex, I can actually worship God through abstaining from sex. And we talked about missing out. And I thought, am I missing out? And I, I thought, well, the answer is yes, I am. But then 
there's so many things that we're missing out on. There's so many things in this life that isn't fair. We're not in heaven yet, and that's something that actually really sustains me. I'm not in heaven yet. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think it's not fair that I haven't, I haven't married a wealthy man. I, there's lots of things in this world, you know, that aren't fair that I'm missing out on, you know. Um, sex is just one of those things. And I love that we often compare to others. You know, I could compare myself to the married people in the room and go, oh, it's not fair, you can, I can't. But we shouldn't be comparing to others. Let's compare to Jesus. And I, and I love doing that because one of the things that I think is wonderful about Jesus coming to earth as a man is he knows what we're going through today. And he was a single man, went through so many trials, and I can really relate to that. So... In trust, do I choose to trust God with my sex life? Yes, I do. I make that choice. His will, not mine. Great. That's really good advice. Thank you. Um, uh, the other word I want to give you now is uh, Greek. It's all Greek to me, Greek, is that yeah. it? How does that relate? Okay. Um, I think God's word has been something that's been very special to me, and I've been very privileged to spend some time looking at um, the Bible in Greek. And there's, there's some, when you talk about love, we only have one English word for love, but in Greek there's a number of different words for love that actually help understand what's God, what God is talking about when we talk about love. So for example, eros, which kind of is where we get erotic and all of those kind of words for. Eros is where you've got that passionate physical love. And so for me, looking at, well, what can I and can't I do under, under God's will? Eros is no. Simple as that. It's, I'm not married. That is not my option. Um, where's my list here? Agape love, of course. Many, uh, many of us will have heard of agape love. Agape love, that unconditional love that we can only get from God. And that's something that I have. I have that because it's a fact in my life. I know it. I've experienced it. But God, I have so many of my well-meaning friends that say, I just, just picture that Jesus is wrapping his arms around you. I go, he's not. You know? <laughs> so agape love, yes, it plays a very important part in my love, in my, in my love and my life. But the other kind of love that is really important to me is the filet love, which means brotherly love, which means love of friends like in the church family, outside, that's where I get my nurturing from. That's where I get my love relationships with, my love with two-way relationships with friends. And that's the really important part of it. Yeah, helpful. And, and it's interesting that, uh, I suppose, biblical Christians often be uh, criticised for having a narrow view of love. But what you've actually shared there is that we have a very broad view of love and there's a lot of freedom to be found in Sex not being the only form of love, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And last one, dancing. And no, we're not talking dirty dancing here, <laughs> yes. Um, I happen to love dancing. <laughs> but I've got a problem. Um, I'm not married, but God has created me, as he's created every other person, to desire to be in a relationship to desire to be in a physical relationship, to desire sex. So what do I do? Well, 
I get into those fillet-type love relationships and I get into appropriate relationships where I can get what I need from a relationship and what I've personally worked out I need from relationships is I need men, friends, and so I've got that. And I need to be able to touch and to be close to men. So I go dancing. I go rock and roll dancing. And it's a fabulous, it's an appropriate environment, it's a public environment, but I'm, I'm very close to my male partners. Um, and so I encourage every one of us that there are appropriate ways and healthy ways to get those, to get an intimate friendship love relationship. Um, I'd also want to say that with having these types of relationships, you've got to be intentional about how you go about it. You've got to make sure, am I, Kieran's mentioned some of these, am I in a public place? Have I thought about beforehand? Am I, am I going to be tempted? We talk about falling into sin. You don't fall, you slide. You have time to think about it. You have time to plan. You have time to pray. Pray bef- if you think you're risky, pray beforehand. Pray during. I can vouch that it works. I've done that. It does work, and it's incredible the things that suddenly pop up and the whole circumstance will, will change and will save you from temptation. Recognise temptation and don't fall into it. But the bottom line for me is that I trust that not having sex in my life is what God wants for me as the best, and I trust not only that, but that God will actually help me to live my life that way. That's cool. Thank Thanks. you, Robin Ann. That's very, yeah, uh, lots of wisdom there for us, and, and, and that sort of practical advice about how, how Jesus has worked uh, in you and through you through this time. Um, I'm going to pray for you now, and then you can go sit back down okay, and yeah, enjoy your cough lozenge. All right. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for our sister, Robin Ann. Uh, we thank you for the way that you have been... Uh, amazingly present in her life, that you have gifted her uh, and created her in a way that's unique uh, and that she is used to be able to serve you um, and, and share your gospel around the world. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have given her uh, an immense and beautiful trust in her heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for what your word has taught her and we pray that you'll continue to sustain her, that she'll continue to uh, uh, remain pure and uh, and remain trusting a God who loves her uh, and who promises one day to give her that, uh, the yearning of all of our hearts, a desire that's greater than anything that this earth can give uh, when we're welcomed into the loving arms of our Father. We pray this for her in Jesus' name. Amen. Please thank you. Oh, and uh, of all the interviews, I get this one. Thanks, Kip. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you, Robin Ann. You want to say thanks to Robin Ann? All right, well, what have we learned? Uh, well, we've seen that to, to, to prepare room for Jesus in our life, we need to remove sexuality. Um, we'll raffle this off later. Um, uh, I won't. Uh, and replace it with purity, right? Sorry, not remove sexuality, re- remove sexualization and replace it with purity. Uh, that's what God's calling us to do, not just as we head into Christmas, but just to make room for Jesus in our lives. We've learned that we need to develop a theology of sex, that sex is good, uh, that sex has boundaries. It's designed as a way of knowing God more fully, and we are to use our God-given sexuality to bring him glory. And as I mentioned before, we looked at Galatians a while ago. Uh, it's a good reference point for us when it comes to guilt and to, to shame. And, and we want to make sure that as you leave tonight, you are not being burdened with rules and regulations. 
God's love and mercy is abundant to those who have put their trust in Jesus. We heard it through Robin Ann's testimony, and many of our testimonies uh, can say the same thing. Your relationship with God is not based on your purity, but on Jesus' purity. And how cool is that? Uh, that because of the pure, blameless Lamb of God, we are accepted by God. And, and tonight, as we finish, we're going to do communion. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to remember what Jesus did to make us pure uh, and, to, and to make us uh, acceptable to God. And as we, as we move into a time of communion, I want to read to you from Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 was composed by David after he was exposed for having committed adultery, stealing another man's wife, and then ultimately having that man killed because he was too cowardly to, to own up to his mistake. Psalm 51 was composed by David as an act of repentance, praying not only for forgiveness, but for a changed and pure heart. I'm going to read that, uh, parts of it, and then we're going to move to a time of communion. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David prays this thousand years before Jesus. uh, And here we are reading it 2,000 years after Jesus, reminded that the very prayers of David for forgiveness, for purity, for cleansing were answered And the very prayers he prays for a new heart and for a new desire were answered through the indwelling spirit in our lives.